it's time for Midweek Media Watch with Hayden Donnell. Kia ora, Hayden. Kia ora, Karen. You want to start tonight by talking about a relatively minor story in the Christchurch Press. Yeah, natural, the natural place to start with a, <laughs> yes. with, a, with a sort of like maybe mid-page story in the Christchurch press. But, I mean, yeah, seemingly innocuous, pretty much boilerplate story about housing intensification in Christchurch. Maybe not the biggest news of the week, uh, but the story leads with a sentence and has a headline that got me thinking. And so it starts... Controversial plans to intensify building development in Christchurch have been released for feedback, but residents only have weeks to respond. The question you could ask there is, controversial for who? And of course, the paper means the existing homeowners, those residents who only have weeks to respond, and they're bothered by the prospect of taller buildings in their area. And in some ways, that's kind of expected. I mean, par for the course. The strategy is controversial with those people. Nothing wrong with that statement. It's accurate. But this stuck with me because I kind of came back to this question of why these people's opinions are often, almost always, elevated to the lead sentence in these types of stories. And it's it's because, I mean, this is not controversial for people who want to live in a house in these suburbs or for people who could never afford to live there. It's not controversial for renters or people who have been priced out of housing altogether. Yeah, you're looking at it in an entirely different way. But it's not exactly an, an exciting media strategy, is it, to say many people were either ambivalent to or pleased with the council proposal. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And this is kind of where my argument falls down. I could hear you screaming at the, the radio listeners out there. You're right, conflict is a news value, and in some ways you can kind of see why. You know, as you say, most people pretty indifferent to government proposal. It's not a great headline, and the reporter who wrote that lead sentence probably didn't even really think about it. And I, I get that because I've written those sorts of sentences when I was in local media and they come pretty naturally because that's you, that's your audience, right? Eating, breathing and defaulting to angling the, on the complaints of the wealthy when it comes to housing. But I, I am thinking if, if we're going to say these things are controversial and we want conflict in our media stories, Isn't there a different conflict here? And isn't there a different direction in which these things are controversial? Is there now a case for the opposite mindset, for a complete change of mindset in the media? Because we've recently had this debate about the Auckland parking strategy, removing parking on 3% of roads, and we're still having it. And that strategy, or even the sorts of housing proposals that this story is going on about in Christchurch, they are controversial for a different reason, and that's that they arguably don't go far enough. Oh, controversial, Hayden. But it's a bit of wishful thinking, isn't it, to think that the media is going to say that housing intensification proposal doesn't go far enough. Yeah, well, it seems that way, right, because of the direction of media coverage and what we've become accustomed to. But I've been thinking, why should it be <laughs> controversial? Why should that be an unrealistic expectation? Because they've angled the story on the complaints of the aggrieved in the other direction. Why can't they do it in this one? And, and, you know, maybe you could say I'm a bit of a de- I'm known as a bit of a dense housing and public transport advocate. I mean, fair cop. But this is not just me saying this because it's my personal preference. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, came, a report came out last week and it says basically 
that we need to change everything right now to avoid climate catastrophe. And helpfully, it gives some ideas on how to do that. And that includes stuff like converting to clean energy and stuff like sustainable farming practices. But a big part of the summary is on the fastest growing source of emissions, transport. And on that, policymakers say we need to densify our housing stock so that people can live closer to amenities and they can walk and cycle and take public transport to places they can use cars less. And it also suggests investing in walking, walking, cycling and public transport. This perspective that this is controversial in the other direction is out there and it's backed by some evidence. And if we really believe in climate change and an organisation like Stuff, which owns the press, has said it does believe in climate change at the highest levels of its editorial uh, department, why shouldn't we be reversing the onus of these stories? There's a saying that journalism is comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. And these stories are, are kind of a transparent attempt in their angling to protect the comfortable from the mild affliction of witnessing a townhouse or an apartment. I, I almost see them as a kind of anti-journalism in that sense, in the way that they are comforting the comfortable. And, and the fact that they're angling in that direction, I think even subconsciously we do this, and I think it speaks to who we think of in the media as our audience and whose interests we act in almost by default. Is it not because... Um, it's the squeaky we- the squeaky wheel that gets the oil because those residents are complaining. Yes, totally. That that's our job, right? To reflect the community, to not just go to the easiest, you know, spokesperson or the loudest person, and the people for whom change can't come soon enough do seem to be invisible to us, or at least invisible when we're covering these types of stories about council zoning or transport. And I mean, I just go back to something Simon Wilson said to me on the weekend about this, and he he talked about how we report about the pain caused by a lack of housing supply, uh, but we, we share it of its actual context when we report on it. So this is what he had to say. We report property values going up and we don't relate it to to the social issue of rising numbers of people on the social housing waiting list. Those things are directly related, but we treat one as an issue that will be great for some people and not so good for others, and we treat the other one as bad for everybody and a failure of a system, but that failure is caused by the rising property values. Yeah, so that's Simon Wilson. He's talking about the exploding social housing waiting list. That's caused by rising property prices and rising property prices, nearly everyone will tell you, is at least partly or in great part caused by a lack of housing supply, particularly at the affordable end of the market. So the people on the pointy end of those rising property values, they, they include this single mother of two, Missy, who spoke to Checkpoint's Nita Blake person in February. Soaring rents and a limited income mean Missy is getting turned away from every property she tries for. And they just look at you like, no, you're in emergency housing, you're a solo mum with kids, and I'm like, my kids are little angels. Later on in the story, we do get a mention of what's causing that situation from the Salvation Army's Ronji Taniulu. We need long-term solutions because they can't stay in emergency housing long-term. They can't stay in transitional housing long-term. So we need that supply to come on the other end. Yeah, so housing supply he talks about there. And that's an example of a great story, but it's not sold as a housing story. Why is the perspective of someone like Missy not considered in the latest report about a cross-armed NIMBY protesting over apartment? Why is it that we think the mild discomfort of the privilege makes something controversial? And why isn't it more controversial to us 
you know, some people are so unwilling to give up even the barest amount of subjective visual amenity to help people like Missy and her two children there. <laughs> right, what is okay. really controversial? I love that phrase, subjective visual amenity. You mean a view? A view of the street, right? <laughs> right the street, a view of right. the particular type. You like one, uh, one house on one section as opposed to three houses on one section. You know, it's that kind of thing. I mean, no, it's, gonna, it's kind of a media bias that goes unseen, right? Because it, it, it happens before the story even gets out there. Media, again, media bias. Perhaps journalists uh, just want an easy ride. It's just sloppy journalism. They're not thinking any yeah. deeper than that. No, you're right. And maybe bias implies some sort of conscious choice, and it's not always that, right? It's just who gets to us. And, and, and that biases our coverage even before we start covering because it's – we don't even hear from some people. They're invisible to us. And I think John Campbell spoke about this when he announced he's leaving breakfast a few weeks ago. He said, journalism matters. And when it gives space to people who don't have comms teams or press secretaries or send out media releases, it can sometimes even change the way we see the world. Maybe there's a call there to seek out and represent the perspectives of people who don't send out press releases and who are often just struggling to survive and put a roof over their heads, and they need to be considered too before we write our next lead sentence about the complaints of the already comfortably housed. You know, that would really be good journalism. Yeah, uh, you've got a text here that says, Thanks, Hayden. There is an endemic, endemic terror about change, which Hayden called out instead of ignoring. So uh, you've got some approval there. You also wanted to speak about the media getting permission to collectively bargain with tech giants like Facebook and Google. Yeah, just in case you're not <laughs> eagle-eyed following the machinations of our media and their commercial negotiations with Google and Facebook, quick recap. Last year, organisations like Stuff, NZME, The Spinoff and others, they sought Commerce Commission permission to collectively bargain with Facebook and Google under the banner of the News Publishers Association. If that sounds confusing, basically they asked to all band together and make sure those tech giants pay them for linking to and using their content. And this week, they have been given provisional permission to go ahead with that negotiation, that collective negotiation. There's a significant omission, though, isn't it? Uh, isn't there one of those big companies isn't on board uh, with the efforts, with the unionised efforts? Yes, that's right. So NZME, owner of the Herald, and News Talk ZB surprised the other companies in late March by going ahead and doing its own deal with Google and negotiating with Meta, pulling out of that collective effort to negotiate with them for cash. And so one insider at a rival company described that as snaky behaviour to the UK Press Gazette. And yes, maybe, but it is also snaky behaviour with benefits. So NZME announced that its shareholders could expect an extra $5 million in profit as a result of its sort of deals that it was doing, and its stock price went up following the news. So decent short-term gain for NZME as a result of its breakaway action. But the multi-million dollar question is whether its deal will end up better in the long run than the one its rivals eventually get out of their collective negotiation, which is now provisionally approved. What is the media's argument for forming this union of sorts? Yeah, so you might remember in Australia something very similar happened. The government was proposing regulation of Facebook to make it pay news and Facebook and Google protested and squirmed, but eventually they sort of caved and negotiated payment with the major media companies over there. And the media's argument over there was that 
you know, they're providing material benefits to Facebook and Google and they're not being compensated. Basically, that's it. The tech giants, they're hoovering up digital advertising and undermining the commercial media's business model. And without that re revenue, media companies are in danger of going under. Uh, so, you know, in and, and, the, and these tech giants are doing on the back of the work of the news organisation. So as our own News Publishers Association General Manager Brooke Cameron says, they've, they've built businesses of unimaginable size and amassed their dominant power using the, quote, free press on their platforms, news made and paid for by media companies. But we have a real difference to how it's played out in Australia in this union effort because – in Australia, the problem was that Facebook and Google, they relented, but they only did deals with the major companies. So News Corp, Nine, The Guardian, ABC, all of those types of ones. And that left medium and smaller size players just out in the cold without the leverage that they need to do their own deals with the likes of Mark Zuckerberg, you know. Uh, and so they're annoyed. All those smaller publications and 30 of them in late March actually just shut off temporarily, leaving their home pages with only the slogan, Quote, no news today, we're waiting on Zuck. So our media are trying to do something different and avoid a similar situation by taking smaller companies like, for instance, the spin-off, with them to the bargaining table so that everyone gets a fairer deal right from the start. No thanks mm. to NZME, I guess. I'd have to say it's ironic that the media believes unionising against the tech giants is the best way to achieve a fair solution here, considering yes. that unions don't play a big part in the media here. Yeah, I mean, in some organisations, but I don't know about you, Karen, but I, I haven't actually seen quite such a sunny disposition towards unions or quite such an optimistic outlook on, their on the ability of collective bargaining to secure a fair deal from some of our media leaders when, when I've been in, our, in their newsrooms. And maybe some of our non-unionised journalists will be looking at their bosses' actions and their full-throated endorsement of how collective action can help them against more powerful <laughs> entities and wondering maybe whether this sort of collective effort might work for them as well. All right. Well, it might be in the air. The workers at the uh, that publishing giant, Condé Nast, they own uh, Vogue and Vanity Fair and the likes, GQ, announced uh, it was this week that they'd formed a company-wide union. So uh, how, how do Google and Facebook feel about this? Uh, I, I really know the answer to this, but how do they feel about this collective <laughs> bargaining effort? <laughs> Yeah, well, you'll you'll be surprised to learn that they hate it. So, I mean, they they submitted to the Commerce Commission against it. They they made heavy mention of the fact that they're already investing in quote innovation in newsrooms, and Google wrung its hands about how collective bargaining will hamper its ability to negotiate bespoke, tailored deals with our news companies. But basically, their argument boils down to the assertion that the media gets more out of them than they get out of the media. After all, they say these news organisations are all on the platforms willingly. No one's, you know, clapping them in irons and forcing them onto Facebook. And they say the the media, they, they, they come here willingly because they see something that they're getting out of us. And the media says back, no, these platforms have leveraged us to become the dominant information sharing, way of sharing information in our society today. And as such... They've become an unavoidable trading partner for us, for better or worse. And so it's impossible to be in the business and not deal with them. And what do you make of Google and Facebook's arguments? Are you convinced? Well, uh, not exactly. I mean, it's kind of and compelling in part, right, because the media doesn't have, you know, a get-out-of-jail-free card for disruption. It doesn't have a God-given right to commercial success. But the problem with, you know, the media's argument is that if if you do away with us, you're replacing us with Facebook and Google, which are basically fire hoses of misinformation, right? And 
That's what they're saying. This will be a detriment to society, not just because media plurality is important, but because, you know, we're already spending all the time and effort countering mis- and dis- disinformation spread by Facebook and Google, which has no real editorial standards and only relies on getting the most eyeballs to its advertising and doesn't really have the same sort of social function as the media. So, yes, I'd say that maybe maybe the media doesn't have a God-given right to success, but we would be terribly damaged as a society if Facebook and Google became the only way of accessing information or the main way of accessing information. Mm, understatement. Well, you've given us a lot to think about tonight, Hayden, and particularly that, that was very interesting um, about that word controversial because I see it all the time in headlines. And um, Yeah, now and think about who it's controversial for, right? Yes, Who's it controversial for? Usually it's the powerful and the privileged. Thank you. Thanks very much, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks' time. Have a great Easter. Thanks, Karen.